knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello and welcome to the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 85, brought to you by Wicked Tree Gear. Today we are wrapping up our DIY Report Movement mini-series with Dr. Bronson Strickland of MSU Deer Lab, and we're covering the why, the science, behind the rut. So stay tuned. All right, all right. What is up, everyone? Happy Wednesday to you. Hope everyone is doing well out there. It is, it's finally here, man. Prime time is nearly upon us. I'm pretty pumped up for my my rutcation. I have almost two full weeks off from work to uh to hunt, so I'm pretty fired up about that. My plans really, you know, I think I'd mentioned this earlier on some podcasts that maybe John and I did when we were covering what our plans were for the year, but I'm going to be headed back probably to my dad's property to hunt for a couple days. So that'll probably be, you know, the, what I guess it'll be the 30th, 31st, the first, and then probably the morning of the second. And then the afternoon of the second, I'll be driving to Ohio then to uh, round out the rest of my, my rut vacation. So I'll be hunting really the, you know, the third, or if I can get out there early enough, maybe go hunt the evening of the second. Um, but at least the third through likely the 11th, I guess is what the plan will be. Not saying that, you know, maybe I don't tag out here in Pennsylvania, uh, prior to that, still have a hunt this upcoming weekend. It looks like the weather's going to be good. It looks like I'm going to have the wind that I need to hunt the, to hunt a couple deer that I've been after. Um, so maybe we'll get it done there. If that's the case, then I'll shift gears and kind of call an audible and head to Ohio early which wouldn't be a terrible thing because there's really a couple other places I'd like to scout out that I didn't get a chance to really kind of fully cover, um, you know, this past summer, whenever I was out of past summer and fall when I was out there uh, doing my camera hanging and, and, and scouting for this upcoming year. So those are my plans for the year. And just, you know, um, as fate would have it, the uh, and it wasn't really done on purpose necessarily, but this podcast is the final uh, part number three of the uh, DIY report mini series with Dr. Bronson Strickland, where we're talking about deer movement in the first couple episodes, you know, we talked about deer movement on a herd level. Um, and then we talked about deer movement, you know, on a singular kind of like, you know, individual deer level or, or buck movement, maybe might be a better way to put it. And so this one is kind of timed up perfectly where today we're really talking about the rut and why the rut occurs and what, what creates the movement and what creates all the scenes that we've kind of see 
during that, you know, brief window period of, you know, going from pre-rut to rut to lockdown and then what happens potentially afterwards as well. So that what is what the uh, the plan is for today. I think, you know, as I'd mentioned, this is, is, is perfectly timed as we're getting ready to kind of move into this part of the season. Um, you know, and it, it kind of gives us all maybe a little brush up on our bag of tricks before we hit the timber during the during the prime time, the time of year that we all kind of uh, wait for. And so one more bit of housekeeping I want to do here before we get ready to uh, jump into the podcast is to make a mention of during the course of my two week ish uh, rutcation, I'll be I'll actually be hunting with Chad Sylvester of Exodus Outdoor Gear. And the plan is and I'm mentioning it here on the podcast to have some public peer pressure is uh the plan is to record a podcast every day in the evening after each hunt to kind of bring you guys along um so you can follow along with how the hunt is kind of unfolding and what's happening each day so i'm making that statement now um and hopefully i'm able to hold hold myself to it i just think it'd be kind of neat to kind of bring you guys along with that and share what's happening i'll probably be doing also some instagram live things so if you're not following us on instagram uh go ahead and, and, and hit that follow button and follow along there as well. With that, we'll go ahead and take a quick second to talk about our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible, and then we will roll right into talking with Dr. Bronson Strickland. First and foremost, we are brought to you by Wicked Tree Gear, the longest, lastest, fastest cutting, toughest tree trimming equipment you have ever used. Simply put, the toughest saws on earth. How tough are they? Tough enough to come with a lifetime warranty, and right now, when you visit wickedtreegear.com, use the promo code TRUTH at checkout and get a 20% discount on your Wicked purchase. We are also brought to you by Exodus Outdoor Gear. The Trek camera comes in at $145. It has the same proprietary shell design as the Lift Series camera, same five-year warranty and unmatched customer service policies, a 0.7-second trigger speed, photo, video, time-lapse, and hybrid modes, all with a simple single-line backlit LED display. You also get about 20,000 images on one set of lithium batteries. And if you'd like to learn more about Exodus trail cameras, head over to exodusoutdoorgear.com and check them out. And if you like what you see, use the promo code TRUTH at checkout and save yourself 20 bucks on a new camera. We're also brought to you by Glacier Coolers, simply the world's finest. Whether you're hunting, camping, or fishing, you'll enjoy smarter design, stronger construction, and superior insulation of Glacier Coolers. Visit them at Glacier coolers.com use promo code truth at checkout and save yourself 20 percent. and now without further ado let's go ahead and get dr bronson strickland on the line to talk the why behind the rut all right folks welcome back you are listening to another episode of the truth from the stand deer hunting podcast this is the diy report mini series we are talking still deer movement we're going to shift gears just a little bit here for part number three and we're going to talk more about the why behind the rut. We will still talk a little bit about movement, but we're going to kind of get into movement under the kind of understanding or the perspective or the lens, maybe I should say, of the rut. But before we jump into that, I'm, of course, joined by my guest, Dr. Bronson Strickland. How's, how's it going, buddy? It's going great. Thanks again for having me. I look forward to talking about the rut. Yeah, man. I've enjoyed our I've enjoyed our conversations. I, uh, I'm a self uh, proclaimed gear uh, or deer nerd uh, and deer geek. So all the stuff that we've been talking about has uh, been um, tickling my fancy, shall we say. So I'm really looking forward to this topic. Well, welcome of to the club being a deer geek. <laughs> I, I'm a card carrying member. <laughs> nice. I'm glad that you're allowing me into the, into the club. I'm, uh, yeah. It might be the only club that I'm, I'm, I'm a part of or that my wife will allow me into 
now <laughs> post my my band and rock and roll days. Yeah. Um, but with that, let's go ahead and jump into to the rut. So this is the sexy time of year that all hunters kind of dream about. We spend all season kind of planning for it. We take vacation for it. I take vacation for it, right? So my big question to you, and this is, you know, both as like a biologist, a researcher, but also as a deer hunter. So why do you think the rut is such a big deal for hunters? I mean, I have a perspective, but I want to get a perspective for you why you think it's such a big deal for hunters. Specifically, you know, if we as hunters and and hardcore deer hunters are, are really trying to understand deer and bucks specifically, their behavior, how they're using habitat, how they're using terrain features and stuff like that. The rut seems like the absolute worst part time, part of the year to try to enact on, you know, or, or enact a plan based on right. anything that we've learned about them throughout the course of a year, two years, three years, five years, however long you're watching specific deer herds and so forth. So what is it about the rut that makes us kind of throw away all the stuff that we've learned for this one period during the course of, of the season? It's a free-for-all that provides opportunity right. is the way I like to think about it. So mm-hmm. all of the, all the scouting, uh, you know, and patterning bucks and, you know, their, their daily ritual and the diurnal patterns of when they're moving and where, you can just throw all that out the window mm-hmm. um, b- because now, you know, the, the buck has completely shifted. He has a one-track mind. He is totally focused on locating females that are coming into estrus. Uh, literally kind of throws caution to the wind. And that's why, you know, we see so much more daytime activity. So when I was saying opportunity, you know, if you're lucky enough to be there on that magic day or days, uh, you'll, you'll see deer activity all day long. And, and that buck that may not have been exposing himself during daylight hours, now he's out and about and now he's susceptible to, to hunter harvest. Right. So I think generally it, it provides opportunity and, and also it provides for a real fun hunt. At least yeah. it does in my case. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think the way I kind of look at it is very similar. Um, I, I look at it as the the rut is kind of like the Buffalo Bills preseason. It's the time in which you have hope. <laughs> um that might have been a little cruel since they got smoked in the in the first game of their year yeah. but but uh it's it's you know I, I think and i i'm the same way i take time off during the rut because you know in all you know everyone who listens to this podcast knows i'm a, I'm a normal working guy i work you know a normal job you know love doing the podcast but you know my full-time jobs in, in marketing and advertising and so you know, I spent a lot of time looking at, you know, topo maps and trying to understand what deer are doing and stuff like that. But really when it comes down to it, to really kind of get the job done, I have a very, you know, small window of opportunity because I can't, I can't kind of watch the the weather and, and hunt like the best days. I got to hunt whenever I am able to get out and hunt. Um, you know, so the rut for me kind of provides me that opportunity where if I don't get something done earlier in the season when I'm kind of picking and choosing my days the rut is the best opportunity for me to kind of have a little bit of use a little bit of experience and skill coupled with a little bit of luck, you know what I mean? That's right. That can create some magic. Um, and that's kind of how I, I look at it. Now I've grown more and more fond of hunting outside of the rut. Um, and oddly enough, one of my favorite times of year is actually hunting late season. Um, cause you know, even though deer are a little bit more skittish in PA, all the uh, fair weather hunters are typically out of the woods during that time of the year because the weather gets rough and stuff like that. And so you have a little bit more free reign over property. So you can really start to use what you know about the deer um, during that time of year. But 
you know, so I, I kind of, I, the net net is, I agree with you and I'm sorry to Buffalo Bills fans out there that I, that I bashed you right there. <laughs> but, um, so I'm curious, you know, about this next question. So what is the biology of the rut? So what is it that drive drives the rut in, in, you know, overall, and what is taking place, you know, changes in deer activity and, and level of movement during this particular time period? Okay. During this time of year, bucks and does are completely different physiologically, or at least in how they're responding. So, you know, when, when a buck loses his velvet, when he's in full hard antler, he is uh, physiologically capable to breed. So even though the rut is nowhere near, once he is in hard antler, he is physiologically capable capable to breed. The problem is that there's a mismatch between when a buck is capable to breed and when the female is breeding. Mm-hmm. And so typically the buck is ready. He's been in hard antler. They've established their dominance hierarchies. There's been all sorts of fighting, and they figured out you know all the different uh, social scheme of, of um, who's dominant. And then it's simply uh, waiting for does to come into estrus. So the same mechanism, photoperiod, that triggers the increase in testosterone production is also going to be what stimulates a doe to come into estrus. Hmm. So so I'm, I'm curious how long – so when we see either chasing activity and stuff like that – how long prior or before breeding will a doe start to give off like her, her, what I'll call is her vibe, her barroom yeah. vibe, if you will. Her um, perfume. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> how long, how long before breeding does, does that happen? Like when can you start to really anticipate that, that true, you know, pre estrus, I guess, you know, uh, seeking and chasing. We generally think of there's about three days in there. Hmm. Um, there's going to be well. Let's let's start with the event. Okay. Um, all this is going to build up into a uh, six to twelve hour time, kind of in that in that time frame, where we say the doe is in standing heat, meaning she is receptive to a buck uh, to breed. Mm-hmm. Prior to that, though, when you see all this chasing going on that basically the female has given off a pheromone or a smell that's saying it's getting close. You know, I am coming into standing heat and and that may be a period of 12 hours to 24 hours before she comes into standing heat. Mm -hmm. And so that is when you'll see, you know, and this will depend on your uh, buck to doe ratio and deer density and all that. But if you're hunting a wide open space, like when I was in, in South Texas, you know, it wasn't uncommon at all to have a doe that was nearing standing heat to have seven different bucks hmm. chasing behind her. Um, so that depends, of course, also on, uh, you know, how many does in the population are simultaneously coming into heat and that peak of when the most does are in heat at the same time, which is typically going to be about over a two-week period, you know, that is what we call the peak of the rut. Right. And so how long will a doe stay in, in standing estrus? estrus? Uh, it, it's probably over within 12 hours, and, okay. and probably most of that is taking place within six hours and sometimes less. Hmm. So it's a real defined period of time of when she's receptive and the buck wants to be there when that occurs. Right. And I know that this is probably, you know, 
dependent upon, you know, ratios and, and so so on and so forth. But what percentage in generalities here of does are bred on that first cycle? Um, probably 95 plus percent. Wow. Maybe more like 98 percent. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So what what happened um, generations ago? Um, so let, let's back up. 20 or 30 years Mm -hmm. if you look at some of our herds by the time rut came around you may have a very very skewed sex ratio meaning you may have five six seven eight does for every adult buck Mm -hmm. when the rut comes around um when that is the case sometimes when does are coming into heat simultaneously there aren't enough bucks in the population to breed all of the does while they are in standing heat. And so, you know, you'll hear people from years ago talk about the second rut mm-hmm. or, or, or a rut lasting for three months, seeing breeding activity for three months. Well, if a herd is managed or a herd is natural, you know, where sex ratios are close to even, that that is just not going to occur. And, and typically, Clint, now when we start seeing uh, – rutting behavior, breeding behavior, like a month after the peak, often that is fawns Mm. that are coming into heat for the first time. And depending on where you're at in the country, um, if you, and I know this firsthand from one of my old roommates, uh, was a biologist in uh, in Iowa, Uh, you can have some regions in Iowa that uh, 70% of the fawns will come into estrus. If you're in Mississippi, the most we have ever seen in a year in a population would be 15%. Wow. So usually you're going to have that that first big, uh, you know, the big uh, breeding season that'll that'll typically take place over two to three weeks. That's probably going to get um, 80 to 90% of the breeding events, you know, taken place over that three-week period. And then a month later, you'll see a couple more little bumps, a little more activity. Often that is fawns. Mm-hmm. But in the old days, that month later rut occurring was because some adult does didn't get bred simply because there weren't enough bucks in the population. Right. And that, and I just want to jump to that secondary rut right there. And so that, correct me if I'm wrong here, but that is really also a reason why you might be seen in places like Iowa versus not happening necessarily in Mississippi and so forth is that those fawns, those doe fawns really have to hit certain biomarkers or right or, or mass, right? In order for, or weight rather, in order for them, their body to kind of cue them biologically that they're able to have offspring. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. You hit the nail on the head. So that is a combination of how much time did you have to grow before the rut occurred and then how much food was available to you. Mm -hmm. So if you're hitting the ground in May in Iowa, and you have soybeans to eat all summer, mm-hmm. um, there's a great likelihood that you're going to reach that critical body mass that would then stimulate, you know, uh, reproduction. Mm-hmm. But if you're in another place, you know, the further you move south where those uh, fawning dates may be uh, July, August, and sometimes September, you just simply don't have enough time to grow large enough when the rut happens right. for them okay. to come into heat. Yeah. Okay. All right, so I want to shift gears here and talk about something that I think hunters um, kind of bat around a lot, and that is the timing of the rut. 
right? You will hear folks mm-hmm. talk about, oh, the rut was late this year. It didn't happen till whatever the dates are, right? Like they're, they've, you'll hear about it being a moving target, right? This year, the rut dates were, you know, the 6th through the 10th or whatever. And then the next year, it'll be like, well, I didn't see any rut activity until the, until the 15th or the, you know, whatever it is, the 18th, whatever the case might be. So, you know, and I think, you know, for the most part, like what I kind of picked up from, you know, what you were just kind of mentioning, there, there's an envelope with, with, you know, that this happens in, right? So I guess let's start, mm-hmm. let's start here. Let's unpack it this way. So does the rut, let's, I guess, put the bed for once and for all, it happens consistently at the same time of year for specific regions year over year over year. Is that correct? Before we continue our conversation, let's talk about Wicked Tree Gear Saws. Hardcore deer hunters need hardcore tools. Do yourself a favor and check out Wicked Tree Gear, the toughest hand saws and pull saws on earth. You buy it once, you buy it for life, backed by a lifetime guarantee. Right now, if you use the promo code TRUTH, you'll save 20% on your next purchase with free ground shipping. So head over to wickedtreegear.com and get a saw that's tough enough to work as hard as you hunt. Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. That is correct. And the way that we can definitively show that, Clint, is that um, your state wildlife agency, uh, they do it in Mississippi, I'm sure they do it in Pennsylvania, uh, where the rubber meets the road, where you, when you know that the rut is occurring the same time every year is when a state wildlife agency does what's called a herd health assessment, or at least that's what we call it in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And during the springtime, they will go out populations all over the state and they will randomly select uh, does for harvest. And what they're doing with that is they are assessing productivity and so they'll harvest that doe in the springtime. Um, we'll do a necropsy on her, and we'll be able to look at her her body fat, her kidney fat, you know, her body mass. How does she look physically? And then also, we're going to see how many fetuses does she have in utero. Hmm. So that that's the productivity part. Now, aside from that, is we can get those fetuses and backdate them based on the size. Mm-hmm. We have a very very accurate formula. We can look at what what is today's date when the doe was harvested, what is the size of the fetus she is carrying, and we know within a give or take a day when she was bred. Wow. And when you do that from place to place, year to year after year after year, we see that if if uh, 10 years ago the peak of the rut was December 1st, uh, then this year the peak of the rut is going to be December 1st. Right. Now, now, sure, based on random sampling, you know, because you're not sampling every doe, you're only sampling a few of them. Oh, the peak from your sample, it may be the third or it may be the first, but the bottom line, you never, ever see these three-week shifts or two-week shifts uh, in the rut. And, and, you know, and that's based on the very best data, the fetus. Right. We know when the fetus was conceived. So, so populations are breeding consistently from, from year to year, but are there any factors that would delay the timing of does or a single doe coming into estrus, estrus that might be environmental, whether it's like some type of environmental stress, lack of food is, are there any, is there anything that could create a delay by any, you know, 
measurable amount? Um, it can happen, mm-hmm. but it rarely does. And so I, I think of this in, in three stages. You know, the the rut or, or the, the breeding date for that female is genetically determined. It is stimulated by photo period and then sometimes affected by her physical condition. Hmm. Um, and, and really what we see, probably the only thing of any significance would just be if she's in a really, really poor body condition, then she may not be ovulating with the regularity that she has in previous years. Hmm. But, but most often, again, looking at a population scale, most of those does are in good condition. And, um, and photo period's not changing. Her genes aren't changing. And so unless she's in a really bad condition or some circumstance like that, she's probably going to breed about at the exact same time every year. Right. And it's interesting. It, it's, it's just nice or, or cool to get like the, the confirmation just because I have a spot that I like to hunt. And I've hunted in the past and I had a buddy hunt it. And, you know, I'm sure the folks who listen to this podcast heard me talk about this before. But so we've hunted it. I've hunted it one year, killed a nice deer. My buddy hunted it last year when I wasn't at this place uh, in my stead and saw the same exact thing that I saw the year before when I killed my deer. And it was during the same handful of days. Like it was like a three to four day window that there were just bucks chasing, grunting, fighting, sparring, like just the type of stuff you see on TV. You know what I mean? Like yeah, that uh-huh. it happens on this one in this one area and it's happened consistently now two years in a row. And so to me, like if I ever needed real world kind of proof that I visibly saw that like this stuff happens at the same time within like herds in the same places, like that was it, you know, because it yeah, seems like it's yeah. consistently happening every year around the same three, you know, three day window that it just goes, it goes bananas, you know, and it's like. And really what it is, there ends up being a hot doe in there every year at that time, you know what I mean, yeah. in that area, because there's a doe bedding area there. So, but you, you, you had mentioned genetically passing those breeding dates. So what I'm hearing you say is that a doe does in fact pass her estrus dates to her, to her doe fawns. So those fawns, if they come in, if she comes in on the, you know, let's call it the 6th of November, right? Or mm-hmm. 7th of November, whatever it is. And she has doe fawns. Those doe fawns are going to come in on the sixth of November as well. Is that right? That that's right. You know, give or take right. on the average, but but yeah, that's exactly right. And th- that's the reason that uh, in the southeastern U.S. you see from county to county. I mean, literally, we have some places in Mississippi that from one county to the next, you might have almost a month difference in the rut, and and that is basically from restocking. So deer are being brought from all over the country when the restocking uh, in Mississippi and a lot of places in the south, you know, occurred in the 50s and 60s and um, some in the 70s. But that is an inheritance. Mm-hmm. So they inherit that and, and their fawns inherited and their fawns inherited. And and that is why you will see such a distinct difference is because the, the pedigree, so to speak, of, of the population from that next county over probably what was different. And um, we actually, uh, Steve Damaris, my co-director in the, in the deer lab here, they did some uh, genetic research that demonstrated this very, very clearly. Hmm. So, so I know that, you know, when we talk about rut and, and, and breeding, like this is all kind of you know, photo period is, is in play here. And then there's also the aspect of um, 
evolution, I guess, is, is what I'm trying to say, is in play where the deer have to drop their fawns by a certain time so they have an opportunity to grow and you know be strong enough to withstand the weather that's approaching in that and correct me if i'm wrong but that's you know in layman's terms it's kind of you know the i guess the the outline of it is yeah. is there what about in places you know because obviously for people who are listening like that's you know winter is coming it's going to get harsh food is going to get scarce so these deer need to be able to be strong enough to weather those harsh conditions so when we get into places like florida which mm-hmm. has abundant food year round and there really isn't such a thing as a as a winter necessarily how does that impact when they're going to to drop fawns based on their survival capability to survive well for for, for example in some places in south florida the rut may be in in uh, july hmm. um here's here's what happens clint when um when you move a very general relationship here when you move from a temperate area in North America, so let's say Pennsylvania and even further north, the closer and the closer and closer you move to the equator when you get into a tropical environment, which basically, like you said, is the same year round. We we don't see – we see a decrease in the consistency of conception dates at a population scale. Hmm. So if you look at deer species in Central America, South America, close to the equator, uh, rut rut occurs year-round. There is no single established rut period. Breeding season happens year-round because there is no environmental selective force to push them one way or the other. Right. Resources are the same year-round. If you contrast that with some, I don't, Manitoba or something like that. There's a very defined period of time where that fawn has got to hit the ground early enough, but not too early. Fawn can't be dropped before winter's over. Right. Um, you got to hit right when spring green up is coming, grow as fast as you can, uh, achieve the appropriate body mass and fat levels. And if you don't, it's death. Right. And so that that is Mother Nature's most harsh selective force. There is uh, you'll die, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, and, and so that pattern easily becomes entrenched. You know, right. if, if something's genetically controlled and then reinforced by an environmental pressure, it be- it becomes a very reliable pattern. Right. Yeah, that's uh, that's some harsh punishment for for a deer, right? It's like <laughs> wrong oh, birth, yeah. r- wrong birth, yeah. wrong birth date. You're out of gas. You know, Sorry, I mean, pal. Yeah. No second chances. <laughs> no. Um, so, just a couple more here that I have that I want to that I want to cover before we, before I let you go. But you know, so you had mentioned sex ratios a little a little earlier, and so I want to just understand you know how sex ratios impact the 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 rut overall because you'll hear hunters you know especially folks who are managing land like might say you know we've got to harvest some does this year and and part of that might be because they're looking at their the balance of their habitat and what it can support right that that's one aspect Mm -hmm. of you know doe management you know and harvesting Um, but then there's the other aspect where you hear folks talk about like you know I need to control the ratios so what what does sex ratio having a balanced versus an unbalanced sex ratio during the rut have in, in, in terms of kind of determining the activity movement and just overall kind of health of the, of the rut. Okay. So think of it this way, um, a skewed sex ratio. In this case, if we had, uh, 
five dose to one buck or seven dose to one buck, it, it's not going to affect the timing of the rut when it begins. What it will affect is the duration of the rut, meaning that, as we touched on earlier, is that, again, genetically controlled, you know, stimulated by photo period, and, okay, here the hormone surges begin, and and this doe is in heat. She's in standing heat. Mm -hmm. But simultaneously, you know, all around her, there may be 10 other does that are in standing heat, but there's only two bucks. Mm -hmm. Um. So physically, they are not physically capable of breeding with all those does while they are in standing estrus. And what the, what the doe will do is recycle. If she did not conceive during that first copulation event, then what she's going to do is recycle. Uh, very similar time scale to humans 28 days later, hmm. then she's going to come into heat again. And so now, so since some of those does did get bred, now there's fewer does than estrus at any given time, and then they're probably going to be bred on the second time. Hmm. Um, s- some, some interesting factoids here. In, in research pens, then uh, it's been demonstrated that they will cycle up to five or six times before their body just finally says, all right, it's not happening this year. Right. And, and they'll stop cycling. Uh, another interesting thing that, that happens, uh, it was something we actually documented here at Mississippi State uh, about a decade ago, is that 25% of twin litters were fathered by different bucks. Hmm. So interesting. It, Yeah. So the term is multiple paternity. (laughs) So while she was in standing heat, you know, one buck may have bred and bred and put his nose in the air and, oh, there's another doe coming into heat and he runs off and starts chasing her. And then another buck, she's still receptive. And then another buck will breed her. (laughs) But yeah, about 25% of the time when a doe produces two fawns, they're going to have a different father. (laughs) That's interesting. Yeah. So it's... (laughs) I'm always curious. So this is something that I heard, read, um, and had a fella on who who had kind of mentioned this in terms of of, of hunting and, and how he kind of approaches the rut. And I thought it was kind of interesting. And and in in theory, it sounds right. And I just want to get your perspective on it from a science kind of perspective. So if you're on a farm, and just it's a farm any in anywhere USA, and you're hunting the rut. And you're trying to determine your stand locations based on that you know that, you know, a buck is going to be checking doe bedding because your property comes in, you know, during this week or whatever. Usually when you see your, start mm-hmm. to see your activity pick up. What this gentleman kind of suggested was, and, and I kind of th- thought it made sense, was that, you know, when you're trying to pick where you're going to put your stand. So if you have doe bedding areas A, B, and C. And and they're in order of dominance, right? A is the most dominant, B is the secondary, and C is the tertiary doe group. The dominant doe group is the doe group that you want to hunt early in rut because they're likely going to have dominated the best bedding and the best food source. Therefore, their bodies should be in the best shape and functioning as it should, which means they should which means their their estrus cycle should come in as genetically predisposed to do so. Mm-hmm. And then 
at the same time, once that doe group starts to go out, you know, you already see it start seeing less activity. You kind of transition to hunt that second doe group and then to that third doe group to kind of follow the bucks to the different doe groups that are going to be coming in. Now, this cycle might happen, you know, based on what we've been talking about within a very small window of time, be it a handful of days. Mm-hmm. But what do you think of that? Is that something that's plausible or, or not? Or what are your thoughts? I I could see where there is some merit to that. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the issues I would have is how am I as a hunter going to determine which of the doe groups is more dominant? Mm-hmm. Who's number one? Who's number two? Who's number three? And along with that, let's say that group A is the dominant matriarch. Mm -hmm. She's the oldest. She's the biggest. She is um, socially, she's the stuff. That is not correlated to when genetically she may be predisposed to come into estrus. Mm -hmm. So even though physiologically she's in fantastic shape, which means that Mm -hmm. when by a photo period in her genetics that um, she comes into estrus ASAP. But it doesn't mean that a more subordinate doe, um, she may be genetically programmed to come into heat five days earlier. Right. And what she has in terms of habitat and and food sources available to her may be adequate for her to hit hit that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Science, man. I love it. (laughs) <laughs> well that's just my two cents that's right. the way i would look at it right no, it's just well, i mean just science it's like it, it provides you a platform to kind of de you know, decouple things is what i right. love about it you know what i mean it gives you a, a set of in a a perspective and a way of thinking to kind of solve problems and then also kind of pick things apart to make sure that they stand up to the rigor you know that's it's a it's a fascinating field, science in general, especially for us deer hunters. The uh, the the biology of deer is you know exponentially you know more fascinating than any other type of science I think that we probably engage with. But <laughs> so one one last question before I let you well, go. Let, let me give you two more cents on that where sure. I thought you were going, and yeah. I was like I was thinking I was like well absolutely that's what I would do. Um, so if I had knowledge of um, that this doe group hangs out over here this group hangs out over here i mean what i'm going to do is i'm going to look for some type of cover corridor that links the two Mm -hmm. because we know as we talked about previously bucks are going to be checking those Mm -hmm. and they're probably not going to do it in a willy-nilly fashion yeah they're probably going to follow a pretty much similar corridor to and from and if you can find a network you know of corridors connecting those i think that would be a very high probability place to set up and, and see a buck right because as we as we were talking in part two it's like they're they they have a rhyme to a reason as to how they check their specific areas and they have timing that they will kind of adhere to to a degree and in, in, yeah. in which they want to how often they want to get back to these places that's that's another good point um so one last thing before i let you go you know we always hear about the you know a lot of folks i think when they see deer chasing right it's a buck chasing a doe because he's trying to you know she's she's giving off her perfume and he's saying hey you're close i'm going to hang out with you maybe he acts like a gentleman early because he knows it's not maybe prime time yet but as things get closer he becomes a little bit more a little bit more pushy and so forth so the the conventional kind of thinking is that you know the buck is choosing the doe or carving her out to 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 breed so who is doing the choosing here? Is the doe doing the selecting or is the buck selecting the doe for breeding? 
Man, that is a great question. It is something <laughs> we have wrestled with. Um, and I don't know if you might be referring to um, some research that we just concluded um, where we engage in this topic called female choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, m- and- I may have wittingly uh, placed <laughs> this. <laughs> okay. Well, l- let me give people just a little bit of background. I promise I won't ramble too long. So um, in in the most of the animal world, think specifically like uh, people have watched any type of nature show they have seen bird behavior where the male is going to uh, think turkeys, Mm -hmm. you know, the male is going to strut and display, you know, Uh, think of a peacock's tail. Uh, Think of the birds of paradise where literally you have this female sitting there scrutinizing and picking which male she thinks is going to be the best father. Mm -hmm. Now, why does she care so much is because it's her investment she is the one that is going to grow these deer or grow these eggs. She is the one that's going to sit on the nest mm-hmm. She and incubate. So it comes at a tremendous cost to her mm-hmm. to do that. So think of a doe. So now we're in the deer world. Man, that buck, he's in it for a couple of days and he's gone. Right. You know, the other, the other 363 days a year, he doesn't have anything to do with that doe. He's not going to have anything to do with that phone. So she has all the reason in the world to pick the right father. Right. So we had always talked about female choice has to be at some level working with white-tailed deer. So in it, we conducted an experiment where we manipulated antlers. We had uh, does that were in estrus. They were chemically induced to be in estrus. And with various techniques, we assess with a very high rate of probability that uh, most often if a doe is given a choice of the same age buck, the same body size, the only thing that is different is their antler size. She chooses the buck with large antlers. Hmm. Why, why would she do that? Well, uh, antlers are a signal. They're a signal of genetic quality. They're a signal of I've I know how to navigate the landscape and acquire food. So we look at antlers as they're, they're also an ornament. They're a weapon for combat, right. but they're also an ornament to a female to display genetic quality. Um, now, the thing about it, Clint, is does cannot, you know, that's an opinion. That's an experiment. But in the wild, does cannot manipulate uh, which buck breeds with her she basically what we call passively so she's making herself available she is hoping that the process of male to male combat that the biggest male has won Mm -hmm. that the most fit male has won and he's going to be the one chasing her and then he's going to be the one to breed her but what we're thinking more now and it's actually tied into these excursions clint what we started wondering is Maybe she might be choosing by availing herself at a certain time in a certain area where a certain buck may be. Right. Maybe that's her way of uh, facilitating choice in some way. So she's not choosing directly, but she might be increasing the odds of where she goes and hangs out while she's coming into estrus of connecting with uh, with that buck that right. she had communicated with earlier. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. It's uh that's kind of wild the way that kind of played out in the pen though. Like that's uh 
that that, oh, it, that leads it you. It was to, clear as day. There yeah. was no dispute. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it leads you to believe, like to your point, it's like there's a lot of variables when you get into the wild. But it would only make sense that if they are making a choice whenever it's controlled, there has to be some type of effort to persuade or tip the odds. You know what I mean? Because otherwise, right. why would it be hardwired that way? Otherwise. Yeah, that, and that's what I'd always thought. Is like, this just can't be random right. on, a, on a mother's because she has everything to gain by having some some uh, participate in some way, you know, of, of who breeds her. Right. Well, that, I think, concludes our part number number three. Dr. Strickland, I just want to say thanks for coming on and, and doing this session, uh, the, the three-part series. I think a lot of folks out there are going to really enjoy kind of hearing the the hunter and the kind of science and research aspect of things and kind of debunking some things that we've probably kind of held on to too long <laughs> to a degree yeah, uh, yeah. During, during our hunting careers. Uh, but before I let you go, if you wouldn't mind, just give the people that are listening uh, some information about you and where they might be able to find more about you and the type of work that you guys are doing in your podcast and so forth. Absolutely. Uh, Clint, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. It's always fun to talk about deer biology and deer management, and I'm happy to do it anytime. Uh, a little bit about me and us here at the MSU Deer Lab. Uh, a couple places you can find us and connect with us. Uh, of course, you can just go to our website, uh, msudeerlab.com. Uh, we're engaged with social media, so we have a Facebook page, um, Twitter account, Instagram. You know, all that is just MSU Deer Lab. And we post on that regularly. Like when we uh, upload a new podcast episode, we make sure we announce that on our Facebook page. So pretty much if you um, follow us on social media, you're going to be aware of all the, the events that are coming, uh, coming around here with us. And if you want to look for more information, like we have a kind of an encyclopedia of deer biology information on our website with a lot of the topics we talked about tonight go explore our, our website and um you'll probably find what you're looking for there yeah folks be sure to uh, to to give it a to give it a check the uh, the podcast is one of those ones where if you are a a deer uh, just a person who wants as much information about deer as you can possibly get like there's really no other place to to, to turn to 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 get it um, one of my favorite ones is really kind of talking about mineral stumps. Um, which oh, I yes. was, and I know that you have a soft spot for mineral stumps, but, um, the, uh, it, it's incredibly fascinating. If you're a person who just wants to learn more about deer, deer biology management or whatever the case might be, like you've got to check it out. Again, the site is literally an encyclopedia of anything you could possibly want to know about deer. So be sure to give them a follow. I will put all the links to all these different places in the blog post show notes. And with that, Dr. Strickland, thanks so much, and good luck to you this season, and let's, uh, let's be sure to stay in touch. Absolutely. Call me anytime, Clint. I'm happy to help. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank Dr. Strickland for joining us for this entire series. It's been awesome to have him on, learn a ton of stuff, and hopefully you guys have been able to take a few things away from it, uh, away from our recent conversations to help you in the deer woods this year and going forward. Be sure to check out his podcast, Deer University, for more in-depth reviews of the science behind all things whitetail and follow them on Facebook and Instagram at MSU Deer Lab. We'd, of course, like to thank all of you for listening. And if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating. 
and be sure to subscribe to the podcast. We'd be super appreciative if you could do those two things for us. And before we shut this thing down, we need to give a big shout out to our partners that continue to help us make this podcast possible. Wicked Tree Gear, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Trophy Ridge, Ozonics, Obsession Bows, Tech and Money Seed, Glacier Coolers, Ramcat Broadheads, Trophy Taker Rests, and Dead Down Wind. And until next time, we'll see y'all. Long time coming if it's all. It takes a special knowing to call a broken letters. Rationalize yourself in numbers, but... Alright gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do hard shit hat for those of us who like to embrace micro-dosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear.